Star Wars Action News is brought to you in part by Brian's Toys. At Brian'sToys.com, you can find Star Wars toys and collectibles from 1977 to the present. Brian's Toys has it all, from vintage toys and action figures right up to the latest releases. And when checking out, be sure to say you were referred to Brian's Toys by Star Wars Action News. So go check out the world's largest selection of Star Wars toys at Brian'sToys.com. listening to Star Wars Action News, your source for Star Wars collecting news, reviews, and updates, helping Star Wars collectors collect better. Be sure to check out our website at SWActionNews.com, where you can see photos of the items discussed, chat with other Star Wars Action News listeners, and much more, including information on how you can be part of the show. Hello and welcome to episode 409 of Star Wars Action News. I'm Marjorie. I'm Arnie. And we've got a lot coming up on this show. We have writer Wyndham joining us. He is the author of so many Star Wars books. The most recent is the Death Star Technical Owner's Manual. You know, for your Death Star that you really got for Christmas and you don't know how to use it. Your voicemails with a look at the Star Wars Vault, the affordable edition. <laughs> but we are coming to you from our... Normal Star Wars Action News studio, not from St. Louis nor Chicago, despite the Star Wars auditions apparently taking place there. I think it's happening almost worldwide. It's like an invasion because it's happening in England, St. Louis, Chicago. I'm sure there's some other cities going on, but... Yeah, if you are a young male or young female, they are looking for leads for Star Wars. I, I don't know how I feel about the open casting calls. I would prefer that they maybe get someone who can act and knows what they're doing. I think that's the benefit of open casting calls, though. Jake Lloyd aside, open casting calls often find undiscovered talent who's not associated with any other role and can actually act. Now, for Jake Lloyd's role of Anakin, they did see hundreds and hundreds of kids, and he was the best. See, that's what scares me. <laughs> that was the best they could do. Yippee! Lucas isn't exactly an actor's director. It might not have been entirely Jake Lloyd's fault. I'm not going to put 100% of the blame on him when the direction most often quoted from Lucas is faster, more intense. So, did it start, yippee? No, faster, more intense. Yippee! I mean, eh, what do you do with that? But we also have a release date, and I know that fans are starting to rankle a little bit. It's coming out in December, December 18th of 2015, just barely by the skin of their teeth making that 2015 date that they said they'd do. I have mixed feelings about this. How about you? I think that it's a perfectly acceptable date. I mean, if you look at some of the highest grossing films of all time, they were Christmas releases. Avatar was a Christmas release. Titanic was a Christmas release. I'm sorry, but instead of having one of the biggest films of all time, I just want a good film. I agree, but they're also looking at this as blockbuster potential, and everybody puts their big hits out in summer, and it leads to overcrowded summers like we had this year, where so many films get lost in the shuffle, like the wonderfully underrated Pacific Rim, which you can hear my review of at NowPlayingPodcast.com. 
I think there will be a lot less competition, but I just close my eyes and picture Christmas 2015 with an onslaught of new Star Wars merchandise. I just hope maybe Hasbro finally rectifies the long-standing blight on their action figure history with their Christmas-themed red spray-painted Vader, and maybe it gives us a holiday Vader based on the fan club art of him with the Santa hat on or something. <laughs> because there's just going to be so much of that going around that year. That's what really scares me the most is the merchandising of the holiday plus the movie all in one huge Death Star-like explosion. I'm just not jazzed about waiting outside in line to get in the theater to get good seats. You know, I think that's something that with a Star Wars movie every year, that's what Disney has said, a Star Wars movie every year, I think a lot of traditions need to come to an end by necessity. For example, the months and months of waiting in line to see a Star Wars film, that's very cool and hipster to do when there's one every three years. But if you're waiting outside for months every year, that's not called being cool. That's called being homeless. (laughs) And the midnight showings, that's going to be great. I don't think we'd have to wait outside, though, because I think this isn't 16 years of pent-up fandom awaiting that moment of extraordinary release. It's another Star Wars movie. Again. Then after the prequels, you got to think expectations are a little bit lower. I mean, when episode one came out, everybody was like, my childhood will be restored. And then we walked out realizing we're still old adults and that perhaps what could wow us and wonder us fighting teddy bears when we were eight (laughs) may not hold the same magic and wonder when you're 28. Well, You know, when you're 28, you want more mature things like trade embargoes and trade federations, right? We're all grownups. That's what we wanted. And then we, you know, delve into the, I don't like sand. Which is not to hate on the prequels Well, wait, so was Hayden Christensen an open casting or did they just go with what they knew? He was a great actor in Life as a House. Actually, Life as a House came after. I think it was open casting because episode two was his first movie, but not the first released movie because post-production took so long because all the CGI sets. So what you're saying is you're really hoping the third time's magic. In JJ We Trust, right? Not really, no. Hey, he did a great job with the Star Trek reboot. The first one. Yeah, yeah. Not the second one. Yeah. And he made the only good Mission Impossible films. I, okay. And Lost and Alias. So Lost was maddening, though. Well, after Afraid of he left. maddening, yeah. So I think that I'm cautiously optimistic about new Star Wars films, but if there's going to be one a year, just by its nature, the specialness wears off. That is very, very true. And so I don't think that we'll have to wait outside in line on December 18th. We'll go to Fandango, and then we'll go maybe... and half hour, 45 minutes before the movie opens, just like we do all the other midnight releases we go to from Superman to Iron Man to the Fright Night reboot, all of which you can hear me reviewing. The reason I go to these midnight showings is because of now playing. (laughs) Star Wars is the one I'll be going to for fun instead of for work. But since I am heavily promoting now playing, we are reviewing Thor this week and You might want to check that out, nowplayingpodcast.com. There's a big discussion at the end of that show because I am going to be perfectly honest. I'm a little bit nervous because Disney owns Star Wars. 
And Disney has said Star Wars has not been properly exploited. That's the term is exploit. Really? Yes. Really? There has not been enough merchandising. That's exactly the problem. You're right. Oh, my God. I I don't know why it took Disney to realize this. And I guess maybe all along I've been feeling empty inside that there's just not enough Star Wars toys. We've got this big house and I was wondering how we're going to fill it. The fact that they bought Marvel and now are doing five Marvel TV series. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. plus the four they just announced. They're doing all these different Marvel cartoons. They're doing two Marvel films a year. It's a really good indicator of how they want to handle Star Wars. They didn't pay a billion dollars just to make one movie. Now you sound like their dad. (laughs) I'm not going to pay a lot of money for you just to make one movie, damn it. But... It's true, and we have a big discussion at the end of the Thor review looking at how the Marvel movies have changed since the Disney acquisition and some nervousness I have about Star Wars in the House of Mouse. I think we're all a little bit nervous. I am. I just, they have done a good job with Marvel, right? Except for a few select one movie. Well, let's look at it this way. Disney was not truly making Marvel movies until Iron Man 3. Because Avengers was well underway and well planned before the acquisition. So anything Marvel Phase 1, you can't completely credit or discredit Disney with. But the Iron Man 3 and Thor 2... We can blame them. They were there from inception to release. And those are two of the weakest movies. Just having seen Thor 2, and it was a snooze fest. That's your review. That's you my review, my yes. That, but- that's my review, so send the... Thor hate to me, I guess. Wrong show. But I'm a little bit nervous, and you just have to hope that the creator has a vision strong enough, and that, again, is JJ in this case. Who knows who it will be next time? Rotating writers? A little bit nerve-wracking. But here's my question. Did we need more? I was happy with it being finite, and then having the EU off to the side if I chose to stick my toe in that, you know? Do we need it? I mean, I'm happy with the way Jedi ended. Are there big burning questions? Do we need everything answered? Do we need just additional stories? Do we need to see Luke Skywalker, the middle-aged, retired years? I I guess I'm not understanding what we could gain. I kind of just like it the way it is. But I'm nervous about it as a problem. I agree with you. I love Star Wars. I love the thought of seeing more Jedi, more bad guys, more space adventures. And so I'm excited to see more stories. That said, I am an EU fan who sought out those stories in video games and books as well. Is it necessary? I mean, Lucas said repeatedly, although you can't always trust what he says, (laughs) but he said repeatedly that the story is over. The story of Star Wars is the story of Anakin Skywalker. We started with his childhood discovery by the Jedi, ended with his death. It's done. So the question is, I mean, what is need? What do you need? Look at the Marvel movies. Do we need to see more of the superheroes we've already seen? Are there stories that are burning to be told? Or is it, hey, people will go see this and let's make some money off of it and it might be a good movie, it might not. There's always commerce in pop art. There is. And so what we're having is a commercial decision being made to make more movies. Disney doesn't sit around and I don't think Iger is saying, I really need to know what happened to Han and Leia. I think Iger sat around and went, Star Wars is a property that rivals Mickey, so let's buy it so it doesn't compete with Mickey, and then let's profit off of it. 
The question is, do the people who are writing the script and directing the film have a really good story to tell, or are they going through the motions? And you see that in all sequels, from Friday the 13th Part 8 to Star Trek Into Darkness. But wait a second, the Friday the 13th movies are a little bit more formulatic. And it's okay. That one I can forgive the continuity because he comes back in the second one. Come on. that You said the suspend reality on some movies. Right. And I think that, again, the term I'll use is cautiously optimistic. And good luck, though, to Carter, one of our first Star Wars Action News listeners. He was listening to us when he was just a wee little boy. He's always been taller than me, though. And now he's this yacht-rocking <laughs> 20-something <laughs> who sent in an audition tape for the Star Wars casting call. So, good luck, Carter. <laughs> you didn't get the gay Mandalorian named after you in Troy Denning's book, but maybe you can star in the upcoming Episode 7. So to collecting, last weekend was the Toy Man Toy Show in St. Louis, and we had missed the previous Toy Man show because we'd been doing a lot of traveling lately, and New York Comic Con was around the time. And I was really feeling the urge to go to Toy Man and see what we could find. It was one of those less expensive trips, though. I didn't spend a whole lot of money at Toy Man this year. No, I don't think he bought very much at all. It was jam-packed, and we did find out that they are looking to move to the second floor of the building they're in for the one in December because of capacity, which is good because that means there'll be a little bit more breathing room in there. Yeah, what they said was they had been a two-story show. But when the economy went down, they just didn't have as many people buying. They didn't have as many vendors coming. And so the entire time we've been going, it was single story. Mm -hmm. And now they're looking at opening up the second floor again. I credit slash blame all of this on the fact that on the show we missed, Toy Hunter showed up there. And they'd been teasing. They couldn't say who it was. But they're like, a TV show's coming. And we kind of suspected it was Toy Hunter. I mean, who else would it be? And... They did a big thing on the Toy Man Toy Show. I think the effects were immediately visible because when we went this time, it seemed like the prices were a lot, a lot higher. Yeah. The sales pitches were a lot harder and the haggling was a lot less. Mm-hmm. There were more vendors than ever. They'd made the aisles a little bit smaller, I think. They'd taken maybe... 8 to 12 inches out of each aisle so that they could get another row of tables in. And there were some very cool things. There was somebody there who had all the old RPM 45 record book tapes, like the Ewoks Join the Fight and all of that from Return of the Jedi and the Return of the Jedi soundtrack on a vinyl record, but it was a picture record. It had Wicked the Ewok on it. It was very cool. But the guy... He was given such a hard sell. He's like, I was just at Kane County last weekend, and I was the only one with this. You'll never find it at this price again. It's $50. I call BS because I found it on eBay cheaper. Yeah. Including was, free shipping. Same well, thing, sealed. Yeah, and he would not go below 50 and I would not pay more for something like this in person than I'd have to pay on eBay. That's That's silly. He also wasn't a regular dealer. You get to know the dealers when you go because it's the same people. You always see the Disney lady who was not there this time, by the way. 
No, she wasn't. Yeah, you so you see the same dealers. They usually put them in the same spot, but this guy was new. He was where we usually see the guy that sells you action figures. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the places where we have the same dealers that we see time and time again were different. Certain nooks always have the same people. Nathan Ollendorf, who's one of the constant artists, wasn't there, and there were a bunch of new artists. And I think that a lot of people may have just gotten shocked and lost their place because, as we've talked about on this show... I fully intended to set up a table this December Toy Man show. I have some Imperial shuttles. Uh, imagine that. I have some action figures. I have quite a bit of stuff. I have not gotten as deep in my inventory as I would like, but I've got, I know certainly some stuff I could take right off the top, some cases where I've been buying figures the past few years and have spares of certain ones. And before I got a chance to reserve that table, because we were still saying, do we have enough for this one? They sold out. And if they don't expand to the second story, there's just no room. And I think because of Toy Hunter, they sold out last time. There was a lot of Star Wars there, though. I mean, if you are a Star Wars collector, if you were at the last show, you could find so much you were looking for. And even if it's stuff I own, like all the modern figures, I always enjoy seeing what the price of the market is. Like, the Return of the Jedi Special Edition Luke Skywalker action figure, still sealed. It hadn't fallen off its bubble. Down to... 15 bucks. I paid 20 for it in a theater. I just yelled out $20 for the action figure and I had like eight people offering it to me. <laughs> that sounds like such an Arnie thing to do. Yeah, I was bummed that my friends and I didn't get there in time because one of my friend's wife insisted that a washing machine be moved before we actually go and get good seats at the screening. So we had to move a washing machine before we could go. And by the time we got there, out of action figures. So just a loud 20 bucks for the figure. Yeah, a lot of offers. Further evidence that she was not a nice person. Yes, indeed. They're not together anymore. Probably because she does things like that. <laughs> I would never do that. Just a ton of modern figures, almost any modern figure you could want. One of the dealers told us that those Canadian carded exclusives, the figures that never came to the States, have no demand. You just couldn't move those barely at what they're trying to get for them. Even the Brian's Toys exclusive Jocasta knew there were several of those at the show possibly picked up when they had that deal through Amazon for some Droid Factory packs and Jocasta News. I see these dealers and I know their mindset. I don't engage in their activities, but the Art of Clone Wars book showed up at Five Below. I went to Five Below looking for a copy just to cut up and scan. Ours was sold out. But now I'm seeing that book at Toy Man for $10. That's 100% profit for that dealer. It is. It's not a bad racket if you can do it. Because a lot of people aren't in the know when it comes to Star Wars things. And these people prey on it. So they think that they're buying something they can only get at this special show. And really they could just go to Five Below and buy it. We did see a in-box Imperial shuttle. It wasn't mint in-box. It had pieces missing. But it was... Always great to see that Return of the Jedi vintage box for the vintage shuttle. That guy's selling his old childhood toys because he was telling me, because I asked if it was complete, and he says, no, I lost pieces. They're probably still at my mom's house somewhere. Well, that's <laughs> not going to do me any good, dude. Can I go to your mom's house and search the shag carpeting? Yeah. Or maybe that's just where I lost all my guns was in the shag carpeting of the 70s. But Probably in your dog's tummy. No, my dog was never allowed in the house. Oh. German Shepherd. Still. But a ton of mint-in-box Star Wars stuff. Saw some stuff there that I really was eyeing, but I just didn't even ask about prices or try to negotiate because I haven't decided 
how I'm going to handle vintage box stuff. I'm just not a mint in box collector. I love having vintage carded figures. That's where I'm focusing my vintage collecting right now is on the carded figures of which there were a few there, but the ones you always see, the Return of the Jedi carded stuff with some yellowing. And again, no great shakes on prices, no bargains like I'd found at previous Toy Mans. But with the mint in box stuff, it's so rare and so expensive to get mint in mint box. And if you're just displaying kind of dinged up and kind of yellow and kind of stained boxes, I just don't think that makes a great display. No, and Steve Sansweet's always said, well, how do you know what's in the box if you don't open it? And that's something really hitting hard right now with those Kmart exclusives. Jonathan's going to be reviewing those later, but they're not window packaged. And a lot of people have been getting those home and opening them up and finding figures people bought at five below shoved in the box and very carefully taped back up. Oh. Yeah. So if, especially with the modern stuff and like that Boba Fett slave one from Amazon, so many people were not getting the carbonite block or the wings. Or they got two left wings. Yeah. So with a lot of this mint in mint box stuff, if it's not opened, you can't be sure you even own what you think you own. So I know that last year at Christmas, you got me a Droid Factory set, which was mint in not mint box. Yes. And I love that for the fact that it's complete. And it's so hard to get those complete with all of the little accessories that people have lost or were one-time use decals and such. The way I look at things is complete. Items complete, everything, sticker decals, everything, and then a decent box. Mm-hmm. Can't always get the decent box because the boxes weren't made of corrugated cardboard. They were the real flimsy cardboard. So I figure complete is more important. And so I actually intend to open that, even though you bought it mint in box, because I love knowing that it's complete. Nobody mm-hmm. has touched it but me. That's a mental thing for me. I prefer to buy mint and then open personally and then i'll just display the box folded down behind the item because i love the vintage box art i love how that looks but i just don't think displaying a whole bunch of boxes is a look i want to go with for my collection i'd rather have the boxes folded flat and show off the art with the item instead of having it in the box now window boxes are where you hit me in the middle because i love the way hasbro did some of their dioramas and those window boxes like those target exclusives they did all those thanksgivings ago but when it's a non-window box i'm more of an opener and so when you see this kind of mint in box stuff at toy shows i always go do i need an sealed box or would i save myself a lot of money by finding one that's complete with the box Sometimes you can find just the boxes empty for sale, too. Ryan, we're out in Seattle, found that for the Ewok Tree Hut set. Yeah, he bought that. I think he actually bought the Robin Robin Hood Hood one. Yeah, (laughs) but he got the empty box when it was in great condition. So sometimes if you separate the two, it works out better. And that's the other thing that I like to do with my collection is never think like Ed Norton in Fight Club, where I have that sofa. And for the rest of my life, I never need to buy that sofa. I am not the kind of person who thinks I have that vintage box. So I never need to buy that vintage box. I'm like, I have that vintage box. If down the road, I find a better vintage box at a price that I'm willing to pay, I can upgrade my vintage box. But I think the biggest thing we found, and this is one of the reasons I love going to these toy shows, was an artist who was there selling custom Christmas ornaments of all kinds of geeky topics. 
she was doing some amazing work and she was painting them as we were standing there. She normally paints ornaments for the St. Louis Zoo and she just decided to do this on a whim and she had some really cool Darth Vader, Yoda, Spider-Man, Hulk. One of the best ones I think she did was a scene from Super Mario Brothers, but she painted it all around the ornament. It was like, you know, how you have to go through the levels. Yeah, it was very cool. It had the boxes and the blue sky. And she was only charging 10 to $15 per ornament. I mean, that is extraordinarily reasonable for hand-painted. And her skill is amazing because it looked like she was just completely freehanding. She was mm-hmm. not drawing on the ornaments and then filling in. She was just grabbing a brush and going to it and really coming out with some great designs. She's just a remarkable artist. She does pets is something she said. I think Marjorie got her business card to follow up on that. Yeah, she does paintings of animals. That's her specialty. And she just kind of branched into this for fun. So who knows? I might get a painting of my dogs. Yeah. And it's those kind of crafty things that you just can't find on eBay. You just can't get anywhere else. And we never would have known about had we not gone. And so it was very cool to see those there. Speaking of Star Wars Christmas stuff. Now that we're past Halloween, I can get over my old man Christmas too soon bit. Yeah, please. Once we're in November, I'm down with it. Santa's at the mall and... Okay, that's way too early because Santa traditionally arrives on Thanksgiving or the day after. Santa is early this year. Well, I can go with it if Christmas stuff is everywhere else. Let's have an extended Christmas season. And already, Christmas stuff is half off at... I don't know if this is a national chain, but I do know I see it a lot of places. A store called Hobby Lobby. It's a craft store, kind of like Michael's, but they really load up on this Kurt Adler Star Wars stuff from the snow globes to the nutcrackers to the Yoda treetopper to the Fabergé or Fabriche. They're not like the really expensive Fabergé It's Fabriche. It's Fabriche. Yeah. But I'd like to point out, though, that their business model is everything's always half off. I almost bought the Darth Vader cookie jar that is not at all Christmassy. It's just Darth Vader in that Empire Strikes Back poster pose with the lightsaber lit. It was $100, half off at $50. 50 was right at my maybe price. And so I'm holding off to see if maybe when we get actually closer to Christmas, they might go 70% off. They had a ton of them. Mm-hmm. And then they had all the Kurt Adler stuff that we already owned. Yeah. Repackaged, though. Yes. So if you need snow globes, they're the place to go. And they also had new stockings I hadn't seen before, a new Yoda and Darth Vader Christmas stocking. I have so many Christmas stockings that I didn't need these, but they're very cool for people who haven't been collecting the Christmas stockings for many, many years. The stuff that really has me more excited for Christmas is coming at Target. And Mitch Halleck, one of our listeners, sent in pictures of these incredibly cute Star Wars Christmas ornaments, Yoda and Darth Vader, that are, they kind of remind me of the super deformed figures and the pop vinyl style. Yeah, they're kind of different and fun. And so since it is time to buy your Christmas gifts and your holiday decorations, it is also time for the Star Wars Action News Sithmas Gift Exchange. Yeah, it's pretty exciting this year. We're going to go ahead and start signups now because Thanksgiving is late this year. So we're starting signups now and you can sign up through December 2nd, which is a Monday through midnight at that time. Central Zone. We will send you your Secret Santa mission sometime December 3rd or 4th. We would like the items to be shipped by December 20th so that they get there in time for your matches Christmas opening. 
And this year we have set the price to $20 minimum because action figures are $10 now. Yeah, we've been doing a $10 minimum gift ever since we started this. And Jason, our webmaster, Darth Prime on the forums, who really takes the charge on doing this for us and making these matches and coding the web form and all of that, said this year that you don't just want everybody getting a couple of five points of articulation figures or one good figure. So we are upping the minimum gift price to $20 and it's always such a fun time and you can choose again to ship internationally or only ship within the country because international shipping does get expensive. But thanks to Jason for putting this on again this year and I'm very much looking forward to it. I want to see what my secret match wants and what I can get for them. I'm just glad that we're getting the matches in time for the next Toy Man, because if they want something a little unusual and happen to get one of us, maybe we'll find something at Toy Man that we couldn't get otherwise. Mm-hmm. Now, next up, we've got Jonathan, and he's going to talk about what he's finding on the pegs. Hello, Swanlings. I'm Jonathan, and welcome back to On the Pegs. After the craziness that was October, things seem to have slowed down a little bit for November, although not by very much. I don't know how many of you include places like Marshall's, TJ Maxx, and Tuesday Mornings in your toy runs, but you may want to include them, especially if you're looking for some of the older Class 2 ships. There have been numerous reports of them being found at those stores for prices right around $15. I've heard from people that have indicated that they've gotten various Jedi Starfighters, which really isn't a surprise, but what was is I got reports of people finding things like the AV-7 Mobile Cannon, the Episode 1 Naboo Starfighter, and the Republic Fighter Tank. And speaking of good prices, if you've been holding out on the five-point articulation figures in the Saga Legends, you may want to go check your local Walmart. I've seen two different stores that have had them up for $4 clearance. As I've said previously, I personally feel that these are really nice sculpts and have a playability that isn't seen in some of the Black Series figures. Speaking of the Black Series figures, I've been getting some reports that Wave 2 of the 3 and 3 quarter inch figures have been arriving in stores. This has been primarily from the West Coast and some of the Southwestern states, but it seems to slowly be moving across the country, so if you're interested in these, I would keep checking your Targets and Toys R Us's. Also found have been the Wave 2 of the 6-inch figures. My friend Chris, Jedi Yoda 7 on the boards, indicated to me today that he found the Slave Leia on pegs at one of our local Targets. So again, get out there, they seem to be hitting. And just in time for Wave 2 to be hitting the stores, Wave 3 of the Black Series 3 and 3 quarter inch line is up for pre-order. This can be found at places like Entertainment Earth or Star Wars Action News sponsors, Brian's Toys or Big Bad Toy Store. What's interesting about this Wave 3 case is that there are only five new figures in the mix. We have the new Clone Wars Mace Windu, the EU Darth Plagueis, the Episode 6 Vism, the Episode 3 Clone Commander Neo, and the Episode 3 Wookiee Warrior Marimu. Also included, Wave 2 figures that may be a little bit harder to find, including Mara Jade, Luminara Unduli, the Stormtrooper, and the 41st Clone Trooper. 
If you're a Star Wars Lego collector, I suggest you go check out Amazon.com as soon as you can. I was recently there looking for gifts for my boys because Hanukkah comes a little bit earlier this year, so I've got to make sure I get on top of these and take advantage of as many sales as I can. What I was able to find, and actually quite excited about it, was the Jabba's Palace from two years ago for almost $30 off at $86.99. And that's going to be a wonderful gift for one of my boys. They have not only some of the older ones, but a lot of the newer ones, like the new ATTE and Jabba Sail Barge. Not all the prices are good, but there's a lot of them that have $20, $30 off. So if you're looking for any of these sets, go to Amazon now before they change the price or sell out. Also news that came out recently was that Kmart was going to be having a Black Friday sale on the new additions to the Vintage Collection. Now, while the prices are good, I'm not sure that if you're interested in these sets that I would wait, because at least in my area, these things have been flying off the shelves. Which brings us to our review of this week. I'd like to kind of take a look at what the Death Star scanning crew, the Imperial scanning crew, and the Ewok Catapult have to offer collectors. First up, is the Ewok Catapult. Now, a few weeks ago, Jerry and I speculated that this new Catapult was actually going to be a rehash of the vintage mold. So imagine my surprise when I opened up the package and found a completely new skull. It's smaller than the vintage Catapult, but it is a really nicely done piece, comes with two boulders, and I am happy to report that it does fire nicely. It comes with two Ewok figures, Chumbre and Stemzek, and I apologize to the Ewoks for butchering their names. Now, these two figures are, as would be expected, kitbashed and repainted Ewoks from previous releases. Most notably to me is Logray. You can see his head on one and his torso on the other. These are nice figures, and considering the set is $22, I feel it is actually a good value. But one of the best things about the Ewok Catapult set is the vintage box. I can't say enough about how much I like this look that they have going for some of these vintage items. And I'm actually sad to see it go. I think these will probably be the last three entries in the vintage collection for a while. The Death Star scanning crew comes with an Imperial officer and an Imperial technician. The outstanding figure in this set is probably the Imperial officer. I guess the only complaint I have about this figure is he stands quite a bit taller than the other figures. I think he uses some pieces from the 30th anniversary collection Death Star Trooper, which also was a taller figure, but super articulated, very nicely done. He has the correct ranking bars on his chest and a removable cap. The other figure is an Imperial Technician that is a slight retool of the one we got in the Legacy Collection. They come with the same base piece that the Scanning Trooper got in the Legacy Collection. Which brings us to the second one, the Imperial Scanning Crew. Now this one is probably the standout of the two sets. It comes with an Imperial Stormtrooper TK-421 and another Scanning Trooper that is different than the one we got in the Death Star Scanning Crew pack. But what's nice about this one is it comes with the other box of equipment from the Scanning Crew. It fits on the base and when you open it up, it actually has inside various scanning pieces and some tubes 
so you can recreate any scanning of captured ships that these guys need to do. But the really nice figure in this set is the Stormtrooper. This one uses the mold from the original super articulated Stormtrooper from the vintage collection subline of the original trilogy collection. Thinking way back here. Now, they've changed his belt and given him a different gun, but I have to say I always liked this mold and I think I kind of preferred it to the vintage collection Stormtrooper that we got in 2011. One, because the helmet just looks better on him. I know some people really like the new one, but I just kind of think that this one, the way the helmet is scaled to the body, looks better. He comes with the new E-11 blaster where the stock folds out. The only disadvantage to having this gun included with him is it doesn't fit the holster on his belt. The belt is the one new thing about this figure, and it's really nice. On one side, you've got evidence of the little grappling hook, and on the other side, you have a really tiny comlink that is going to get lost really quick. In fact, when I got mine, I took it off and I put it in a little baggie away from where I was displaying my figures because I figure I bump this guy and next thing's going flying and I will never find it again. Overall, I'm really impressed with these two sets and I'm actually kind of sorry that they are going to be the last ones we see for a while. For their price, $16.99, I think that they are well worth it. If you can go out and find them, get them. And if you don't have a Kmart in your area, which I know is a problem for many of our listeners, there are a lot available on eBay. And while I don't say it often, I think paying a little extra for this set is actually worth it. That's it for me this week. Until next time, keep searching the pegs. Thank you, Jonathan. Now, a couple of things you mentioned there. The $4 Saga Legends figures being marked down at Walmart. I first saw about that on Yak Face, and they were wondering if this was a widespread phenomenon. And now that you're seeing it there and Chris is seeing it, it really makes me wonder what this means for the reception of these lower articulation, lower cost figures. I mean, you mentioned Five Below, and there are ton of Star Wars figures at Five Below. Just an absolute ton. I went to Five Below myself, like I mentioned earlier, looking for that Art of Clone Wars book. They had the Walmart 3D figures with the glasses there. They had a whole bunch of Saga figures there. And these are pretty well-articulated, well-detailed figures that are being sold for 4 or $5. And if you're just looking at needing a Stormtrooper or an Anakin or an Obi-Wan... I have to wonder, where's the best bang for your buck? A five-point-of-articulation figure for $6 or a much better detailed and articulated figure for $4? I'd go to $4. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you, Jonathan, that there are some great sculpts going on in the Saga Legends line. We did a review of those figures, and I gave most of them a pass, heavily taking the cost of the figure into account. But... If you're looking at the figure selection they're doing, well, there are plenty of R2 units and Obi-Wan sitting at my five below that are 
every bit as good or better than the stuff they're pumping out. So is this clearance a sign that this line is already dying on the vine and people just prefer Angry Birds to action figures anymore? Oh, that makes me sad inside. Or is it there's nothing to look forward to till the movie and they're not releasing any pre-movie figures so the excitement's at an all-time low right now? I think that Hasbro is attempting to play it safe and not do any real secondary or tertiary characters and no new characters, a lot of repaints, a lot of figure upgrades. And until episode seven, and from what I'd read, Hasbro's marketing and all the marketing heavily played into the episode seven release date decision. It's kind of an interesting time. And I just am watching with great curiosity to see what happens next. And as I've said many times on the show, it's why the six inch figures are exciting me so much more right now than the three and three quarter inch line because Hasbro's strategy on the three and three quarter inch line confuses me. I just don't, I understand it, but by the same time, it's not that exciting in a time when coming off the comic packs and the expanded universe figures and the vintage collection where distribution was the problem, but the figures weren't a problem. The character selection was never a problem. The problem was just getting them. Now, I still haven't seen any wave two, three and three quarter inch figures or six inch figures in stores. Again, making me think that if these things aren't selling, the same distribution problem we had with vintage first time and second time is going to hit again. Sometimes I feel like C-3PO when it comes to this and his doom and gloom attitude. I try to avoid that. I just, I really do. And there's no fun in endless negativity, which is why I find my excitement where I can get it in the six inch line and some of the other collectibles coming out like the books and hey, the pens, those cereal pens we mentioned again. I have been buying a lot of cereal. Thank God your grandma loves cereal. Yes, indeed. Honey Nut Cheerios and Reese's Puffs. She loves the Reese's Puffs. But Marjorie had a pretty good idea and pointed out to me, rather than continually buying boxes and boxes of cereal, I got five of the eight pens, just buying eight boxes of cereal for grandma. I was able to get the last three for the price of two cereal boxes per pen and avoid the blind box hassle just by headed to eBay. Yeah, and it works if you only have a few left to get. I don't know that it would be worth it for the entire run. Now, at McDonald's, yes, that would be the ideal for the entire run of toys because it's finite every week. You get this toy this week, that toy next week. But with the blind box cereal, mm, buy a few, see what you get, and then go to eBay for the rest. And that way you're probably spending a little bit less. But this week at Target, if you do want these pens, they are having a sale on those cereals. Two boxes for $6, saving you about a dollar a box. And that's worth it. And also on sale this week at Toys R Us, all the Uncle Milton Star Wars science products are 30% off. My niece and nephew love those. We sent them some of those and they thought they were so much fun, remember? Mm Mm-hmm. Hitting my Toys R Us, they had just a ton of Wave 1 of the 6-inch figures, nothing from Wave 2, ton of the Wave 1 Black Series 3 and 3 quarter inch figures. They did have something kind of new and cute, but just more than I wanted to spend. A giant Yoda plushier. It's called a Backpal. I think it's a backpack, and it is this smiling, cute Yoda though. I'm kind of waiting to see what happens with the holiday sales on that because I'd really just snatch it up at 15 to 20, 30, a little much. Yeah, that is a lot of money. And I've been hitting Toys R Us religiously looking for those 
Geonosis figure packs. And I even hit some Toys R Us's down in St. Louis this past week, not able to find those. I was really crazy hunting when I had a 20% off coupon <laughs> that was good for one week. And then I was hunting a little bit less manically when I had a $10 gift card with $50 purchase and still no sign of them in my area. I know a lot of people have found them. It's possible, however unlikely, that they've already come and sold out at my Toys R Us because I've been going about every other day. There's not even a spot on the shelf for them. There's no bare areas of the shelf unless they put them in front of those still shelf warming X-Wing pilot packs with the Steve Sansweet looking (laughs) pilot. And then when they sold out, they pushed the pilots forward again. I just don't even see where they could have put them. And finally in stores this week, if you are a Lego collector, there are two Walmart exclusive Lego sets, the HH87 Starhopper and a Bart Speeder with Sidecar. Those are available now at Walmart.com and in stores. I don't recommend Walmart.com because it's maddening, especially ship to store. Ship to store is a nightmare. Just if you're going to Walmart.com, have it shipped to your house. But the nice thing is, if something goes wrong, you can then return it to a store. I had to do that. I got a crushed box and I went to the store with my shipping receipt and instant refund. Online, things have been a little bit slow lately, but Sideshow is teasing their next Star Wars premium format figure. And it is a Clone Wars-based figure, Savage Press. He's got a really angry look on his face. He really does. Like, they've got his brow furrowed and everything. The detail on the teaser picture that they've revealed is astounding with the wrinkles on the forehead and the detail on the horns. The pose, I want to see the full body. It looks very similar the way it's hunched over and his arm is kind of going out to the Darth Maul premium format they did a long time ago. That's what it's kind of just striking me as in this. But his armor, all of that, and... Second only to Hondo, I think Savage Press is my favorite character original to the Clone Wars series. Hondo, he just reminds me too much of my dad. So <laughs> I have a personal affliction for that character. Whereas Savage Press was just a cool character. Perhaps a tad bit unnecessary to have Darth Maul have siblings, but still a very cool look. And I'm... On the fence on whether or not I'll be ordering this. I want to see the full body shots. I've got Chewbacca on order from Sideshow waiting for that one. I'm leaning towards no because it's an EU kind of character and I prefer to go a little bit more towards the movie characters with premium format. I skipped the Asajj Ventress. Yeah, you've got to draw the line somewhere, I think. And just buy what you want, I guess, of the EU stuff instead of being obligated to just buy it all because... Well, mental illness. Well, with episode seven, I can't afford to buy it all. No, no, no. We're going to have to pick and choose. Yeah. Or else I guess I can get a third job or second or third job. You don't even have a second job. Yeah, I guess I don't. Yeah, my second job is assistant to Mr. Arnie Carvalho. (laughs) So it just really looks well detailed, though. So be sure to sign up for the Star Wars Action News new release newsletter so that you know when this has gone up for sale. Over at Brian's Toys, you can get the FX Mall Saber Signature Edition. Those are pretty cool. Yeah, this is the Legend Edition Signature Edition from FX Collectibles. The Darth Maul Episode 1 lightsaber, limited to 500 pieces, 
cast from a screen-used lightsaber. Great piece. I've talked about it on the show before. The only thing holding me back is the fact that I have the signature edition from Master Replicas. This one is even more screen accurate than that. And it's really affordable at $400. (laughs) For a legend piece, that's a great price. Yeah. And they're just lovely to have. They're so pretty. It comes with a nice display base that has the plaque with the signature. It's a gold plaque with episode one on it. I mean, I love FX collectible stuff, but because of the market, and we talk about this all the time, Gentle Giants prices have gone up on the mini busts to a price that I consider a bit unreasonable. Sideshow's prices have gone up on the premium formats. All statue prices have gone up. FX collectibles prices are higher for their lightsabers than what I was used to paying at Master Replicas. And it's not because FX Collectibles is more expensive. It's because just the price of labor in China, all of the stuff we've talked about before. And so to have a Legend Edition saber for 400 especially one as big as this, this is a big piece, guys. I mean, I again, I have the Master Replicas one that's the same size. And for just 400 bucks. This is a great, great chance if you missed out on the Master Replicas one to get this collectible. Now, if you're in the market for action figures and that's a little bit too rich for your blood, they have Wave 3 of the Black Series. As Jonathan mentioned, there's only five new figures in this set. And I'm thinking I'm probably just going to order by the Wave because I haven't even seen Wave 2 in our area. And here you can get all five figures, and you have that C8, C9 guarantee from Brian's Toys for $80. So slightly above retail, but that guarantee. And for figures like Darth Plagueis, one of the figures I'm most excited about, saw him at San Diego Comic-Con and just looked awesome. Well, you have two guarantees there. You've got the condition guarantee, and then by buying the entire wave, you're getting the figures. You're not going to have to deal with distribution problems, store problems, whatever. Yeah, this is expected to ship in December, and it looks like a good wave of upgraded figures, a couple, but Vism, the Nikto Guard, Rumuru, the Wookiee, Darth Plagueis, Clone Commander Neo, Mace Windu. As people have pointed out to me, remember, we're supposed to be on an Episode 3 hype right now. We're supposed to get Episode 3 in 3D, hence why we're getting a Mace Windu, a Rumuru, and a Neo, but I'll take them, absolutely. Since things are picking up and we've got toys in the stores and we've got Black Friday specials potentially, so let's see what you're saying and finding when we go to our voicemails. Arnie Marjorie, it's Mike from Boston. It's one thirty in the morning. Your phone number is ingrained in my head. As I'm getting ready to go to bed, I want to call about something I got this weekend. Entertainment Earth got its Series 2 Black Series 6-inch figures in a little bit early, about a month before Amazon, and I got my case on Saturday. And let me tell you, Hasbro has a home run with this series. It has completely reinvigorated me with collecting, and I am so all in on this line. Every single figure so far, minus maybe a couple in the first wave, are incredible. Um, the slave Leia is in scale with everybody. Han is unbelievable. Boba is unbelievable. Greedo is perfect. Pain can be a little sloppy here and there, but hey, you know, Hasbro's doing the six inch, and God knows in 10 years we'll look back at these when they're doing the second version of these and saying, wow, these are pretty terrible. But they're perfect, and they're exactly what we need right now. So I hope everybody's collecting them, and if not, definitely pick one up. It will blow you away. 
All right, guys. Great show. Thanks for doing it. Talk to you. Well, that could have ended up creepy, but it actually ended up really good. I was not sure which way that was going with the number ingrained in his forehead. But thank you for calling. Yeah, we did the review of the Greedo, the Boba Fett, and the Leia. And I am so looking forward to when I can get the Han Solo I did pre-order from Hasbro Toy Shop. And because of the way the figures are coming, I just didn't get a case of these. And again, I'm hoping that stuff starts showing up in stores, but I had a coupon code for Hasbro Toy Shop, so (laughs) it was cheaper than Toys R Us. And I agree. I think that, like I said, three quarters of the figures they've come out with are absolutely amazing, with two that just didn't click with me at all for reasons I went into. But yeah, this is a really exciting time. And the fact that they're going to start getting into the vehicles, the speeder bikes, and possibly some of the beasts. And I just picture a Wampa in a six-inch scale and how cool that could be and the level of detail they're bringing. I mean, for all the stuff we said earlier, I still think it's a great time to be a Star Wars collector. And the six-inch Black Series is a big reason why I feel that way. They are really nice and really well made. They're exciting. The only one I haven't gotten my hands on now is that Han Solo, and the pictures I'm seeing online make him look really good. Also really excited by some of what the customizers out there are doing, too. At Yak Face, I saw somebody customized a 6-inch scale Jabba. I don't know how you do that. Maybe you just start with a block of clay and sculpt it, but amazing stuff for the people who are so excited by the 6-inch line. They just can't wait. Hey guys, this is Scott from Minnesota, MN Shum108 on the forums, and I was calling with a quick review of my latest um, purchase this week, the Star Wars Frames book. Um, many of you may remember a few years ago, there was a six-volume hardcover set that cost, I think it was three or $5,000, called Star Wars Frames, and they have now released a much more affordable um, version of this, bo- of this book, for those of us who don't have thousands of dollars. Um, Star Wars Frames, it's a two-volume hardcover um, set with a, a beautiful silver silver gray slipcase. Um, it says Star Wars Frames on the outside of the slipcase and has a cool Star Wars-y looking engraving on it. Um, each volume is, has one of the trilogies. Um, volume one, obviously, is the prequel trilogy and volume two is the original trilogy. Um, the box that I received from Amazon weighed about 20 pounds. It was triple boxed when it arrived. There were two boxes that the box was boxed and then another box outside it. And then I had ordered something additional. And so there was a third box. And I think given the size and the weight of this book, I think the triple boxing was a smart idea on Amazon's part. Um, it's a beautiful book. It's a, the book is about 16 inches wide by 14 inches tall. And the two books, with the slipcase that are about five inches thick. So it's really good size, heavy, like I said, almost 20 pound um, set. Um, volume one, the prequel trilogy includes an introduction by J.W. Rensler, um, which has a really fascinating overview of the process that he and George Lucas went through when um, Lucas was selecting the pictures that were um, chosen for these books. Um, and then volume two has an introduction written by Guillermo del Toro, the movie director. Um, his introduction is more about the impact and legacy of George Lucas and less about the process, because I, I was assuming they probably used the exact same process for all six films. But the introduction in the first volume is really more about the prequel trilogy selection. But like I said, I'm guessing it's probably the same process for um, the episodes four through six. 
Um, interestingly, uh, George Lucas spent with J.W. Rensler and um, a couple other people about 25 hours watching just The Phantom Menace to select the frames that were selected for this book, about two to three hours per session and two to four sessions per month. Um, so they really put a lot of time into it. And there's also an interesting note that all pictures in the book are taken exactly as they are on screen. So there's no airbrushing or other enhancements for the photos that are included in the book. Um, as a result, some of the pictures have motion blur, um, which was interesting to see that because that's not something you always see in these sorts of books. Um, the other thing that I just want to mention it was, that I found really interesting um, is looking at the difference in the crispness of the pictures in episodes two and three, which were shot digitally compared to episodes four, five, six, and one, which were of course shot on film. Um, there's a very noticeable difference. Um, you have kind of the grainier pictures in episode in the original trilogy and the Phantom Menace. Um, and they're beautiful pictures, but it's definitely a noticeable difference in terms of it's for like, grainier is the word I'm, I'm thinking um, compared to just how crisp and clean all of the frames look um, from episodes two and three. So Overall, this is a tremendous book. Um, I pre-ordered it on, on Amazon, and so I got it for about, I think it was 30 or 40% off the retail price, um, which I believe is $150 is the suggested retail price, but there's still a significant discount on Amazon, and I would definitely highly, highly recommend it for anyone who um, is really into Star Wars books, especially the behind-the-scenes books. It's a really outstanding, outstanding book. And I can't recommend it enough. I'm only about halfway through episode one right now in terms of actually looking through and examining the pictures. And I'm looking forward to continuing to look at those pictures in the coming days and weeks as time allows. So thank you. And I look forward to seeing all of you on the forums and on Twitter. Love the show. Goodbye. Thank you, Scott, for that really in-depth talk about that. We've got that sitting over here waiting to heft it up the stairs. This book is amazing. And Scott, you went into the detail and said the exact same things that I would think. On the one hand, the fact that they're not at all touched up and the motion blur kind of takes it a little bit away from it, in my opinion, uh, because I love glory shots when it comes to photos. You know, you want to see it so crisp. But by the same token, the fact that these are frames from the movie, that's what this book is to be. Absolutely incredible. Now, the MSRP on this is $150. It is currently on Amazon for $94.88. Because I pre-ordered and they did have the pre-order price guarantee, I got this for $75. And if you remember when we first talked about this on the show, this was listed as a paperback version. I was expecting a trade paperback, but this is a hardcover book. And when it arrived, I couldn't believe the weight of it. It is just so freaking heavy. It weighs 20 pounds is what Amazon lists it as. I didn't put it on a scale, but it has a heft to it that makes it feel even more expensive. Now, does it feel like the multi-thousand dollar frame set? No, that has a gorgeous wood box and collectors are snatching up that original larger version. It is right now on Amazon for $12,000. So over double the original price. And yeah, when it was even cheaper, it's quadruple the cheaper prices I saw it at. The only thing that disappoints me about frames, and I just didn't realize it till I got the books. I mean, when I ordered it, I didn't know what I was getting. I thought it might even be paperback. That when I started looking through it, I was a bit disappointed because they made it four pictures 
for every two pages or two pictures per page, you open it up and look at it and you're seeing four frames. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're taking multiple huge, huge, huge volumes and making them an affordable, smaller two book collection. But I'd almost preferred that they'd included less frames and made them full length or something rather than having so much negative space per page and having these tinier frames. But I think there's a trade-off because you would have to have an oblong-shaped book, a rectangle-shaped book, to put one frame per page and make it bigger, which then you've got an odd-shaped book again, which is the problem with the original frames because it's ginormous. Right. So while I do love this book and I love being able to examine each frame, it doesn't have any sense of wonderment other than the heft of the two volumes. When you look at it open, you don't go... Ooh, the way I did even scenes from episode three on the Wookiee planet battles, which I'd seen so many times seeing them in the big frames volumes firsthand at San Diego Comic-Con was a drool worthy moment. And here it's like, yeah, it's the Wookiees. It's slightly bigger than a double page Star Wars insider print would be and much shorter. I was expecting more when you opened it, I'll be honest, but I don't think there's a good solution. No. So in the end, the original Star Wars frames, this isn't a substitute. If I won the lottery, it would be the way to experience this. But I'd say that this is the NutraSweet to Star Wars frame sugar. <laughs> but to have these photos, even in a slightly smaller format, first of all, it makes it easier for me to find a place to put it. It is in a more manageable format. I was worried about having to buy a table that other frames ever came down in price where it was reasonable. I mean, where would you put it? You'd have to have a custom, like, book stand for it. If you're spending that much on Star Wars frames, I do believe going and finding like one of those stands you see in churches where they put the big, big Bibles is warranted. <laughs> and then just like having that be a spotlight in your study where people can come and turn the pages. Of course, only if they're wearing gloves, because I don't want your finger royal on my multi-thousand dollar book. <laughs> they have to wear the Intel bunny suits to go into the room with frames. <laughs> yeah, that would... If I spent that much on a book, yes. And we did talk to J.W. Rinsler about frames and about, I mean, the gorgeous books he's done, the Star Wars Blueprints, which they also did a more reasonable priced one. And not that the expensive versions of the books aren't worth it, but yeah, like Scott said, not all of us have that to spend on the frames. Or I look at that and I look at the frames and I'm like, that's 10 premium format figures or the book. And I'm so glad, even though it took some time, and this is one of those cases where, for me, the long game paid off, not that I'm getting the exact same product, I'm getting a lesser product at an extraordinarily lesser price. And these are great books. These are an absolute top of my list item for our holiday gift guide, which is going to be our next show. This is already on there. I'm going to talk about it more then, but a great book at a great price and a great gift. Something you can just flip through little by little and consume as much or as little as you want. The only problem I see is wrapping it. I once gave Marjorie a very heavy book for Christmas, and that didn't go so well. No, I picked it up and it just fell out of the wrapping paper. Rather comical. Mm-hmm. 
this is something that I'd probably take to Barnes and Noble on one of their rap for charity kind of days and let the professional oldsters do it for me instead of me trying to do it myself. But that is correct. Gorgeous, gorgeous book, readily available from Amazon. I wouldn't necessarily wait though. It is their current number one bestseller in performing arts reference books. Kind of a strange category, but it's number one. And Rinsler's The Making of Return of the Jedi is number two. Making of Star Wars in Kindle Edition is number four. And Making of Empire in Kindle Edition is number six. So J.W. Rinsler, four of the top six books, seven of the top ten books in Amazon's Performing Arts Reference section. This book above them all. So thanks again for that detailed review. Hey, Arnie and Marjorie, it's Chris, Jedi Yoda 7 on the forums, and I was calling in because I wanted to give a quick review here of the Chicago Toy Show, uh, which was formerly known as the King County Toy Fair. Um, so we met up there. Um, it took place on uh, October 26th, and we met our good friend, Daryl Creature, on the uh, forums there, and um, we met there about 9 o'clock, and the toy show goes from 8 to 3, and it was so big that it literally took us from 9 o'clock till 3 o'clock to go through the whole thing, and we didn't even get all the way through. Um, I would highly recommend it for anyone who lives in the Chicagoland area, and I would say it was definitely worth the drive if you're within a couple hours of there. Um, there's lots of vintage, which seems to be uh, a focus of a lot of collectors of our age group are, are going back and filling in their vintage and getting into that. There was plenty of vintage to look through. There was even some Ewoks and some droids. Um, there was various modern stuff, a lot of Power of the Force 2 and Episode 1, not a whole lot of the more modern stuff, but there was some stuff if you looked. I actually picked up the uh, Naboo Starfighter in the new packaging for 25 bucks, and I picked up the AT-ST from Kmart for 15 I also got a few uh, vintage figures and a couple of pieces that I needed to complete my Dagobah playset including the little cylinder piece for $7. So there's definitely some deals to be had. Just about everybody that I talked to uh, was willing to negotiate. I know uh, Daryl ended up picking up some some stuff there as well. Uh, Sarah picked up a couple non-Star Wars things, and I also have picked up a couple non-Star Wars things as well as a, a Marvel piece. So I definitely recommend it. Um, next year, it is taking place on Sunday, April 27th and October 26th. Uh, unfortunately, the only bad thing is that Sunday that is taking place in April is the same Sunday as C2E2. So uh, you might not have to ch- make a choice there. We're actually debating. We'll have to see what the what the panels look like and how the con goes. But we may actually go over to there and check that out because it was so good. So anyway, uh, as I said, I recommend it if you're in the area. It was a good time. Had a lot of fun looking at toys from our childhood, even if they weren't toys that we were going to buy. So uh, get out there and check it out if you can. Thanks, guys. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Thank you, Chris. We keep meaning to get up there for that toy show. This time we had travel fatigue and just could not do it. I was even in Chicago the night before Robert England was signing autographs for Halloween, and I just couldn't do another hotel stay. I just, every once in a while, like to stay in that place that I used to store my toys called home. <laughs> And it sounds like a great show, though. And 
the more I hear about it, the more it's like, there's no contest to me. We're going to go up early and take a day off work to see C2E2 on Friday and Saturday. Based off last year's C2E2, Saturday is so crowded. Friday's the day to do the floor on that. It is. And Sunday, I think we just had a lazy breakfast and then went home. Yeah, so this year, we'll hit Kane County and then go home. And that means we can have pancakes for breakfast, Chris. So thank you to everyone who called. We want your reviews of what you're finding, the shows you're going to. I have heard from so many people that our discussions of Toy Man and to a lesser extent Kane County has really let people know about them. So if you're in a different area that has great toy shows, call in and let us know what it's going on there so that other listeners in your area can find out about these shows and go to the places and make the finds. And you can also review your latest figures or books or whatever you're buying. Tiny Death Star out now for mobile platforms. Just give us a call at 415-508-JEDI or send an MP3 to show at SWActionNews.com. And speaking of local toy fairs, Steve the Ginger Prince went to one just this past weekend over in the UK. It's always a special treat when Steve is on the show, so take a listen. Greetings all, this is Steve the Ginger Prince, official UK reporter for the mighty Star Wars Action News. And it's great to be in your ears again so soon. It was tremendous fun listening to Arnie and Marjorie describe their experiences at the recent Toy Man Toy Fair on episode 408. And it just so happened that at around the same time, the lovely Suzanne and I were also at a toy fair, the Barry Potter Toy Fair in Bolton. We took a leisurely drive down to the Reebok Stadium, home of the Wanderers Football Club, where about 250 vendors were crammed into the Premier Suite awaiting my business. There are no cosplayers or artists at these fairs, it's straight up and down toys. The vendors range from toy shops coming to peddle their wares, right down to individuals who've never sold anything at a fair before and have just cleared out their loft and want to make a bit of hard cash. It was to be the latter case that would help me strike gold this time around. Now I'm getting used to turning up at events both in the UK and abroad and people recognising me by my voice. I guess my husky tones have stuck in people's heads over the last six years. Anyway, when someone shouted, Steve, within a couple of minutes of entering the venue, I expected to be meeting yet another swanling, but not this time. It turned out to be a guy I used to work with, who had left my place of work about five years ago. He was there with his partner, who had, in his words, decided to sell his childhood. And boy was he not kidding. This was the vintage motherload. Still covered in dust from his loft, he had a table full of vintage figures and vehicles in pretty good condition. After spending 10 to 15 minutes delicately pouring his goods, I decided to pick up a 1983 Tri-Logo Sensoscope R2-D2. I love the old empty barrel R2 with his cheap looking sticker and this was in really good condition. Apart from a crease in the bottom right hand corner of the card, this figure looks great, the bubble is crystal clear, and the sticker on the droid is only slightly faded. I paid 60 quid for R2, and he's gone straight into an acrylic AFA style case and on display in my collection room at Cloud City. Not to be outdone, Suzanne got in on the vintage action, and picked up a better bargain than I did. Only two days after World Ewok Appreciation Day, she pulled off a coupe, finding another vintage carded Ewok to add to a growing Ewok shrine. Can you believe she only paid £25 for a Chief Chirper on Unpunch card? 
Yes, the bubble's become a little bit stretched at the top over the years, probably by Chirper's spear. And yes, the bubble's a little bit yellowed, but this is a lovely slice of 1983. And it's also now safely protected in an acrylic case. Still on a vintage kick, I moved on to a different vendor and picked up another Sensoscope R2-D2, but this time loose and in terrible condition, only for three quid though. This little fella looks really unloved, but he's full of charm, and I had to have him. He's lost his sensoscope, and he's dirtier than that girl you wish you'd got off with in high school. But I love his character, and can't help wondering what he's been through over the last 30 years. For a long time, I've refused to have any Star Wars paraphernalia on my desk at work, but that's now changed, as this grubby little chap is taking pride of place on it, and he's already attracting attention from colleagues, who are keen to pick him up whilst they tell me about the R2 that they had as a kid. Suzanne bought from this vendor as well, picking up a box wicket from the Action Collection. This is a really weird wicket figure, for a number of reasons. For starters, it looks bugger all like wicket. Secondly, his spear is way bigger than an Ewok should be. And C, his hood is made out of this really out of place leather. I mean, it would have fit if this figure was soft goods, but it's not, it's hard plastic. And to have this leather hood just doesn't match. Anyway, for just over a tenner, Suzanne was more than happy to snaffle him up. The last items I found at the fair were also of a vintage nature. My eye was caught as it always is by the Admiral on the front of a Return of the Jedi comic from 1984. The guy let me have it and another one with Salacious Crumb on the front for two quid. Now I haven't had so much fun with something that I spent two quid on since I went mad in the pound shop. These comics smell like musty old newspapers but boy are they a gold mine. The stories are good fun but I love the more eclectic stuff that they contain like the nonky drawings that kids used to send into the post bag and the poor quality black and white stills from the movies that you get. Anyway, luckily for us, there's a retail park next to the football stadium. So right after we were done with the fair, we popped across and checked out Smith's The Toy Store. More in hope than expectation, but on this occasion we found something we weren't expecting. Wave 2 of the 3 and 3 quarter inch black series. For 9 99 I passed on the opportunity to pick up yet another R2-D2. I also left the Stormtrooper and the Clone Trooper on the pegs. I ummed and I ahed over whether to pick up Luminara Underlie, as it's a great looking figure. But after the money I'd already outlaid, I settled for just bringing home two figures from the wave, Mara Jade and Pablo Jill. I'm turned on by chicks with lightsabers, so picking up the Emperor's hand was never in the balance. She was always coming home with me, especially because she's a fella ginger. But I've got to admit that this offering is a bit of a cure its egg. The bad can be summed up in two words, a noggin. I know we've not got an actress to go on, I mean no one's counting Shannon McRandall are they? But by great Odin's raven this is a poor head sculpt. Her hair is awful. It's a badly styled ginger mullet, and that's not pretty, but her eyebrows are the worst. It's like two ginger caterpillars have crawled onto her face. Are there no tweezers in space? I'd like to do a head swap with a Black Widow figure, because I really don't want this staring back at me out of my display cabinet. The good is very good. She's got a great body, and despite the fact that her right hand is moulded in a rectal probe position, she can still hold a purple lightsaber. She also comes with a lightsaber hilt and a pistol that fits neatly into a detachable holster that can be worn either at the hip or moved around so it sits just above her gadunkadunk. Pablo Jill is a big figure that looks pretty much like the Saga Collection version from 2002 in all but two regards. Firstly, they've given him a darker flesh tone, and he's now more tan brown than creamy yellow. And secondly, his cloak is now no longer inflexible plastic, but standard Jedi robes soft goods. If you own the previous figure, buy this as it's a worthy upgrade. If you don't own the previous figure, buy it just to marvel at how that weird head of his actually works. 
He looks like something out of a nightmare that you've had after watching the Silent Hill movie. Now, just before I sign off, Smiths are looking good, not just for Hasbro, but also for Lego. They've got some great deals on the high-end sets at the moment. You can get the Death Star set for £274.99 and fly the Millennium Falcon out of there for £104.99. Both good deals for top sets of bricks. Alright, enough from me. Let's hand you back to your lovely hosts, Marjorie and Arnie. Thank you, Steve. Always fun listening to you and Suzanne's travels. Now, next up, continuing our discussion of some great Star Wars books out this holiday season, Ryder Wyndham is joining us. Author of so much Star Wars stuff, we are so glad to finally have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Arnie. You are such a prolific Star Wars author. I'm sure that all of our listeners have at least read some of your work. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. My name is Ryder Wyndham. I write Star Wars books. What my background, it's been a blur because it seems like it wasn't that long ago. 1976, I picked up a copy of Starlog magazine and I saw some paintings by Ralph McQuarrie uh, for an upcoming movie called Star Wars. And I thought, if, if the movie looks this good, I just have to see it. So I am, uh, what, of an age that I, I was a kid when I discovered Star Wars and well before, months before the movie was released. And I wound up studying graphic design and illustration in college. And I worked as a designer and a freelance cartoonist for a while. And uh, around 1990, I became an editor at Fantagraphics Books, a comic book editor. And that led to a job offer from Dark Horse Comics. And I started there in 1992. And I really have to stress that I, I never lobbied to work on Lucasfilm titles. I, I arrived at Dark Horse, and one of my first assignments was Young Indiana Jones Chronicles comic book adaptations. And not long after that, I was asked to do droids. And I never, it, despite the fact that I was a Star Wars fan as a kid, I, um, I never, I mean, you know, I, I, there was no career plan, and when and when the the projects fell my way, I wasn't thinking, "Pinch me, I'm dreaming." I'm thinking, "What's the deadline for this? When do I have to? <laughs> when 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 do I have to get this to the uh, production department?" And um, but despite, I mean, I, I was you know, definitely fond of the material, and I it was uh, 1995. My then fiance. Uh, and had moved to New York City, and I left Dark Horse and went to New York, and I'd only been there a few months when I got a call from Alan Kausch, who was a um, he was he was the continuity editor for the uh, the book division, essentially with the, I mean, the, the position that Leland Chi has now. And Alan phoned me and he said, "You know this, you know the material well, and you." know our expectations, and we would, uh, you know, he, he, I forget just how we phrased it, but it was essentially, you know, we, we, we have a lot of projects coming up. We need writers who are familiar with our expectations. Would you be interested in writing books? And I almost blew it because I, I do remember saying, well, gee, I've written some comic book scripts. I've never done books before. And he said, no, no, you can. Do, I'm sure you can do books. And so my, my first assignment was, 
a uh, some uh, game books or role playing books, game books that were for Scholastic, and um, so I mean, e- even today, when aspiring writers come up to me and ask, you know, how do I do what you do? How do I break into Star Wars? I have to tell them, I don't know. You know, I know how I it happened to me, and there was no plan, but it was just timing and circumstances and connections. But despite that luck aspect, I mean, I, I've, I've been doing this now. I mean, I've been uh, since Dark Horse. I've been working on Star Wars stuff. It seems well over 20 years. <laughs> so, so that that's my, that's it. That's my career in a nutshell. And you were really at Dark Horse during the formative times of Star Wars Rebirth with, you know, Dark Empire and when the Star Wars fiction was taking off before the prequels. Having such a long history with Star Wars, how is your relationship with Lucasfilm and kind of any creative boundaries on authors changed over the decades from the time when it was being rebrought to the fore during the prequel years and now to the Disney years? I think the one thing that's ch- that changed, or I mean, what, what that up until Disney's purchase of Lucasfilm um, or acquisition of Lucasfilm, I, the thing that was most notably different was that in the early 90s, there weren't that many novels. I mean, there were just a few. It was, uh, and even for the comic books, everything was relatively new. There weren't that many Star Wars games to speak of that. And then the ones that did exist, it was uh, I mean, well, I mean, there were role-playing games. I mean, there, there, I mean, there, there was there, there was Star Wars stuff, but I think that there were, I guess, maybe sort of opportunities to create new things that a lot of people jumped on, and it took Star Wars in various directions. And my own approach from the beginning was, if there were are already so many worlds and so many characters, I was never that interested in developing new characters or new places unless there was a, a practical purpose for that. I mean, it wasn't just, I would never just thought, oh, I've got a great idea for a character who could work well in a Star Wars story. It was always, well, hmm, you know, <laughs> which which characters might might work for this one, you know, without without creating something entirely new. But, to, I mean, to create a new story, but in, incorporating well-known characters. So, but I think it's, as far as how that's changed now, is that, uh, you know, there's, Given that uh, what there's uh, new movies and uh, there are new movies in production, and and, uh, I've heard from fans, they are concerned. They ask, "Well, gee, what's going to happen? Is is, uh, are are the new movies going to reflect the published continuity?" And from everything I've read, the answer is probably not. You know, they're 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 probably you know you know it's it's um what there was a statement that said words to the effect of you know this will be an original movie. It will be. And where I know I am aware that many fans or some fans are outraged about the idea that 20 some odd years of publishing continuity might suddenly become sort of a what if scenario or but because I've been what I was a Star Wars fan way back when when, and I and I tell people when I hear them get outraged I said look I went to see Empire Strikes Back on opening day in 1980 and the whole time I watched that movie I wasn't thinking oh man they didn't include Splinter of the Mind's Eye in here they didn't even (laughs) mention it why didn't they mention that issue that confrontation with Vader in the in the uh, the Marvel comics you know it's just I, I always kind of accepted that there were different creatures you know there were the movies there were the books the comics and that I was never so bent on the idea that everything 
had to mesh. And I know that may, might sound ridiculous because one of the things I hear from a lot of fans is they say that they appreciate how much I try to work with continuity and incorporate. And, and, I, and I, I enjoy doing that. I think that's, you know, that, that's a good, that's a good goal to have as opposed to violating continuity or <laughs> just t- taking it in some wrong direction for no good reason. But that, you know, ultimately, you know, if one enjoyed a Star Wars story that was written three years ago or 20 years ago, I would like to think that somebody could still enjoy that story the same. I mean, the same way, you know, many fans enjoy the Marvel comics still or, you know, other vintage stories that seem, you know, to not quite mesh with the prequels. That leads directly to looking at your newest few books. I mean, where you are here to. Talk about the Death Star Owner's Technical Manual, which just came mm-hmm. out last Tuesday, which is a follow-up to the Millennium Falcon Owner's Workshop Manual. So I'd actually like to start with the Millennium Falcon book a little bit and ask, how did the genesis of that book come about? Like most of the projects that I work on, uh, the Millennium Falcon book began as an assignment. Some fans, they come up and they'll say, you know, how did, where did you get the idea for this? And it's like, well, it, I, it wasn't my idea. <laughs> it was, but it, you know, it began with uh, the Haynes editor, Derek Smith, contacting me and asking, would you be interested in working on this Haynes manual about the Millennium Falcon? And what was kind of funny is that uh, the artists and I, uh, Chris Reif and Chris Trevis, we had previously worked on the Falcon by way of a set of blueprints for DK Publishing, and also a, oh, it was a 3D cutaway uh, board book with um, the Millennium Falcon 3D Owner's Guide, which was published by Scholastic. And uh, it was about packaged by Becker and Mayer. I better just mention everybody so nobody gets angry. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, we, we, so anyway, Chris Reif, Chris Travis, and I, we'd already worked on a couple of Falcon projects when we got the assignment for the Haynes book. And what was, I mean, someone might think, wow, they're really milking this one. But, I mean, if you look at all those things, I mean, they're all different projects. They're all. Um, substantially different looking books but uh, it was I think it was fortunate that we'd had the experience of uh, doing previous work on the Falcon because by the time we got the job for the Haynes assignment we were just ready to do what we regarded as the most comprehensive technical manual on 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 the YT 1300 so then uh, I mean after getting the assignment I talked with Chris Reif Chris Trevis talked with the uh, the editor and we just discussed what the spreads would look like. We also looked at Haynes, other Haynes manuals for actual real-world vehicles just to see how they would be laid out in terms of sections on engineering or propulsion or navigational systems. I mean, just to see, okay, that's how we can break up the chapters for this book as well. And working with Chris and Chris, the Chris's, it's a very collaborative process in that they tell me, uh, we think it would be good to have a, a spread dedicated to this, and we think, and we want to draw an image for this thing. And, and I'll say, okay, well, you know, what, how, what about trying this angle? And they'll say, yeah, but can, can you write the text for this? And I'll, it's, I mean, it goes back and forth. It's not just a matter of I write text and they draw pictures to fit around it, or the other way around. I mean, we, we're, we're just we we for every single spread, it's. It is a collaboration. So that's how that one came about. 
And it was while we were still working on the Millennium Falcon manual that Derek Smith, the editor, said uh, wrote, wrote us sent us an email asking, uh, you know, what do you think of this list of possibilities for upcoming workshop manuals? And one of the vehicles was the Death Star. And you know, we looked at all of them, and I, th- I think at the time we we agreed that yeah, you know, that if, if you know, they all they're all good suggestions. The Death Star seems like that would be the challenge, and I believe it was Lucasfilm. Some, I mean, well, I, you know, I don't know whether it was Lucas, a combination of Lucasfilm and Haynes that they told us, okay, the next one's going to be the Death Star. So yeah, we we don't we Chris Chris and I we don't just sit around thinking, hmm, what are we going to do next time? I mean, it, it is an assignment that comes to us. Okay, I wasn't sure if this was an idea you pitched or if it was something that was assigned. Mm-hmm. You know, w- when you talk about the collaborative process between you and Chris and Chris, I find that to be very interesting because when reading this, the way that the text and the images go together, and the images are such a vital part of these technical manuals. They're just gorgeous books. You mentioned role-playing games, and they remind me in some ways of the old West End games, hardcover role-playing game supplements in the format mm-hmm. of the books and the high-gloss images and everything. So do you find that that inspires more creativity than a more typical situation of you writing and then they illustrate to support the text? It's certainly a friendlier way to work. No, I mean, not, not that I've made enemies, <laughs> but, that, but I mean, it's, you know, I, I mean, as an example, uh, I wrote... Several years ago for Del Rey, I wrote Star Wars Jedi vs. Sith, The Essential Guide to the Force. And as I recall, I pretty much delivered the whole manuscript, and, or, or, or most of the manuscript, before any artwork had begun. And, you know, I, I, I had suggestions for the artwork. And, I mean, I would indicate, okay, on this spread, it might be a good idea to have a portrait of this character. And I would cite reference if it were an obscure character. Look at look at this issue of Marvel Comics. Here's, here's the character you need to find. But, you know, when I saw the finished book, you know, there were no complaints on my part. I would say, I just, I, I love, I mean, it was, you know, the, the artwork was, was great. But, you know, working with Chris and Chris, it just, I mean, it just feels more like, oh, we're in this together as opposed to we're each work, you know, we're working on our respective parts, I guess. So um, some comic book projects I've done, I mean, uh, you know, another example of working with artists where, for example, working with Killian Plunkett on various Star Wars comics, I would sometimes uh, draw thumbnail layouts for him so, and just to show, and it's not to boss him around, because he doesn't need me for that. It was just to clarify, you know, if I, I here's how I visualize the page could look, where, you know, you have the characters here, the speech balloons here, this vehicle coming in at this angle. And Killian didn't bristle with that because, I mean, he, he could improve on things, and he, he knew that, would, that was fine. But, he, I mean, I think he also just would look at it and say, um, and he could figure... Oh, this clearly indicates that writer has some vision of the thing, and he could agree or disagree with me. But that, you know, for, for the most part, we were on the same wavelength. Other comic book scripts I've done, the expectation was deliver the script. I would ask, well, who, who's drawing this? We don't know yet. Should I draw thumbnails? No, that's not necessary. <laughs> so I think, well, okay, and it's so in that case, you know, the, the, the comic could come out, and I might think. 
huh, I, I didn't expect that to look that way quite, or I wish I'd, you know, it's, I admit that I'm a wee bit of a control freak with comics where, you know, it's just, I, I, I think, and that probably comes from my illustration and graphic design background of just that, you know, as I write the script, I never think, gee, I wonder how the artist is going to figure this thing out that I've just written. I mean, I can usually clearly see how things should fit and work, so it's just it's easier to do thumbnails. But uh, yeah, but anyway, Chris and Chris and I, um, no fighting, no crime. We all get along just fine. <laughs> yeah, and those are good guys. We've had them on the show before, uh, including for Jedi versus Sith. Mm -hmm. You mentioned continuity, and one of the things that I found with the Death Star technical manual is you certainly do weave in and out of a lot of continuity that's quite tangled with the Death Star, from those early West End game source books to the different novels that went on with Death Star prototypes, and then the prequels coming along and adding some new elements there. What kind of research did you have to do to get these elements of the Death Star's history together? Uh, I'd say the primary source for a lot of the information was Bill Slavichek's West End game book of um, the Death Star technical companion. And Chris, Chris and I, I mean, we, we all had copies of the book and reviewed it. And we all agreed that, I mean, that Slavichek's contribution to the expanded universe was, is, uh, it, well, it's quite something. I mean, he, you know, there's a lot of stuff in that book and, and other West End Games books that I mean, has trickled into the expanded universe in a big way, into novels and comics and games. And, uh, you know, in reading through, there were things that we found this still works really well. Let's incorporate this. Um, you know, I can't remember specific details. I think it was some structures on the, uh, the Death Star's city sprawls where this is unforgivable of me. I forget which Chris or whether it was both of them. I mean, someone said... You know, I'm not I, this West End game book illustration. I like this illustration here. However, this tower right here, it doesn't really look like anything you see in the movie. It's, it's and we have better reference for the models. So, I mean, th there was this analytical approach of, of just working into the thing. The, the the one item for me that was a bit of a struggle was the the uh, there were the the. Uh, memorandums or, or communiques from Grand Moff Tarkin, and I just love the way they were written in the the West End Games book. Because I mean, the way it sets up that uh, Tarkin proposes you know, it's Governor Tarkin proposes the Death Star to Emperor Palpatine as a concept, and the uh, Emperor's office agrees. And, you know, uh, you are now promoted to Grand Moff Tarkin for this excellent idea for this super weapon. And if one now, now all one has to do though is you know, watch the subsequently released uh, Revenge of the Sith or or and also Attack of the Clones, and you realize, well, wait a minute, you know the Death Star plans go back quite a ways. It's, you know these go back to the Clone Wars before uh, Palpatine became Emperor. And so uh, I, I wrestled with this one for maybe just about, oh, I don't know, 30 minutes or so, trying, because at first I thought, can I make sense of this? Can I make a retcon? Can I do, and, and then I thought, you know, the easiest thing to do is just dismiss this as a, uh, a possible blunder by the uh, 
Imperial Propaganda Bureau. You know that that there's this, <laughs> this sort of this this text that was written and and that I you know I and I didn't indicate that in the book. I anticipate some fans are going to say. Wyndham screwed up right here, and the truth is, no, I didn't. I respected what Bill Slavicek wrote when he wrote it. And I also think if it encourages people to go back and look at the movie and think about it, they can. The reason that I was also hesitant to do any big major effort at a retcon is that Star Wars Rebels is in production. And I, and I will stress, I know... N- nothing about Star Wars Rebels except for what little has been presented online. I mean, just you know, a few official statements from Lucasfilm. But because Star Wars Rebels is set between the events of Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope, I allow the possibility that maybe the Death Star will figure into some episodes. I don't know that, but I just allow the possibility. And, I, and given that possibility, one also has to allow that continuity may change or or information about the Death Star may change. So I thought rather than heap up (laughs) rather than more information or a retcon that seemed like it might work for now only to realize, oh, whoa, that that really didn't work out. I thought, okay, let's, let's work with you know, I, 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 think, I think the general reader is going to read this and they're going to think, this is so cool. They're not, you know, I don't think there's going to be much quibbling. But, um, but if there is, I'll own it, okay? <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, one thing I hadn't picked up on until reading the Death Star technical manual was the similarity between the Trade Federation droid control ship center, the landing bit, and mm-hmm. how it looks like a small Death Star. Is that something that you put together yourself, or do you know if that was the intent of the original concept artists? I'm going to have to be really careful with that one, because I don't remember whether that was my idea or an interpretation. You know, it's, I'd have to, um, I, you know, I, I, think it, it, I think it was in one of the making of books, and, and it, you know, possibly even the making of episode one, The Phantom Menace, that the, I, I might have read something from the, con, it could have been an interview with a concept designer that suggested the sphere was meant to echo or you know, resemble um, a miniature Death Star just as a, you know, it's, I mean, it's a spherical vessel or shape that uh, it just sort of, some, it brings it to mind. As far as the whole idea of um, you know, was was the tra- was that Trade Federation battleship in the e- expanded universe uh, in any way the basis of the Death Star? I just figured, well, the Trade Federation was in league with the Geonosians. The Geonosians had the plans for the Death Star. It, I, I thought it seemed logical or plausible, and um, I would have to check my notes on that, Arnie, because I, I you know, when, when I when I when I send in the manuscripts. To the editors, and and I, I have my my my, my manuscripts have footnotes galore, so they know here's what I made up, here's what I didn't, and here here are my references, and here are, these are my sources. Forgive me, I can't remember. <laughs> no <laughs> you know, problem. Like, well, yeah, yeah. What was it? My idea? Um, yeah, I, I think I think someone else put that idea into my head, and that, but I I don't remember whether it was an expanded universe bit of information or just maybe a, a concept designer's observation. Now, this is the first time having you on the show, and we do focus on Star Wars collecting. I was wondering, what kind of items do you collect? Do you have any Star Wars collectibles? I do. 
gosh, I mean, I, I still have stuff that I bought in the late 70s. I, I mailed away, I, I sent away for the mail away Boba Fett action figure, and um, I still have that. I have uh, the uh, the cast Kenner Millennium Falcon toy. Um, and what's funny is that I didn't. I mean, I guess, and I had a few action figures also, and uh, and the comics. I I mean, I collected a lot of stuff, and I pretty much fell out of collecting Star Wars stuff entirely. uh, I mean, by I don't know, by the time I was fourteen or so, or maybe fifteen, it just. You know, I, I take that back slightly. The one thing, I mean, if it anything involving Ralph McQuarrie or the sketchbooks by Joe Johnston, and I, I those, those I collected, I read. So there were I, I, there were art books that I liked, but it wasn't until I was working at Dark Horse Comics and uh, in the early '90s, or I guess it was the mid '90s, around 1994 or so, and Dan Forsland, who. Uh, we worked together on the Droids comic book series, and he showed me the uh, some Galoob Micro Machines toys, and then the Action Fleet toys. And um, at the risk of sounding like an you know an overgrown boy, I fell in love. I just I thought the Micro Machines, I mean, and the Action Fleet Galoob toys were just some of the, the most fun-looking Star Wars toys I'd ever seen, and still do. So. I have an almost complete collection, <laughs> uh, and and it was you know it was just you know if I saw something it, I'd, I'd I'd pick it up and and um, uh, eventually I was you know on going on eBay looking for the the items that I didn't have but that I I just I I liked the uh, the craftsmanship the sense of fun about them um, they're just uh, I think really really neat toys oh I know those very well I remember getting those back when the X-Wing and TIE Fighter games were still out. So if I needed any extra reason to be excited about those little ships, the Action Fleet specifically, those games got me so hyped. Those were amazing back when Gloop was doing those. So I completely see why you'd get into that. I really did. It's, it's um, I mean, every so often I'll still... Oh, I don't know. I'll blunder into a thrift store and I'll find some Galoob toy. And it, I mean, it's just—it's shameless because I, I think, um, you know, do I need another Tie Fighter toy? No, but they look so great when they're lined up together. You know, they're just—it's <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, if if you just if you buy a Darth Vader action figure and the next thing you you know you get a, a stormtrooper and you realize that you know Vader just looks better when he's bracketed by t- you know two stormtroopers and. Um, years ago, I visited uh, Killian Plunkett was living in Brooklyn back when I was living in, in New York City, and, and uh, I visited his place. And he had a bookshelf, and my best guess is that there must have been about fifty stormtroopers, little Hasbro action figures, all over it. And I, did, I mean, I just at the sight of it, I cracked up laughing. And, and he said, "Well, he said he, that whenever he goes into Toys R Us and he's looking around for something that." If he didn't see anything that he didn't have already, because he was kind of you know, he, was, he was collecting a lot of stuff, he would just be, he said if there were a stormtrooper, he'd just buy one. And so, because as he put it, you can never have enough. I mean, there's just, so so you know, I I I don't think he still has all of them, but he yeah, he just um, it was it was it's a sickness. It's <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's it can be a fun sickness. Now, I have to ask, 
what are the pith lords? I've seen you on Facebook with the <laughs> pith lords. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Well, pith lords. Uh, uh, about maybe uh, I guess about two months or so before Celebration Five, I sent a message to Randy Stradley and. Uh, I suggested that uh, actually it was first. We, we, I knew we were going to be seeing each other at San Diego Comic Con prior to the uh, Celebration Five, and I said I just wrote to him and I said I think that we should show up at Comic Con and we should be wearing pith helmets and we should declare ourselves the Pith Lords. And he wrote back, I don't have a pith helmet. I said, well, then you need to get one. And he couldn't get one in time for uh, San Diego Comic Con. But uh, we we showed up at Celebration 5 wearing pith helmets, and everyone would ask us, what's with the hats? To which Randy would reply, it's not a hat, it's a helmet. And it's a respectful gag, because we knew that, you know, I have so many friends in the Rebel Legion and the 501st Legion, and I knew the stormtroopers were going to be buffing their armor special, <laughs> you know, for the event and the occasion. And it was just sort of a lark you know, to walk in and just like we put on pith helmets and we declare ourselves the pith lords. And so, but I mean, there were, we were interviewed by various people asking, you know, so what is the pith lords? And we, we would just say, well, the reason that celebration is held in Orlando, we we have a lot to do with that, and we'd say it straight. I mean, we just—it was just, you know, it was just a goonie lark. But anyway, um, we uh, we we got into uh, um, slightly kinder territory with Celebration Six because uh, Randy bought a case of pith helmets, and we he sold them for charity. He sold them and was giving away certificates to, I mean, essentially, you buy a pith helmet from Randy and you are an instant member of the pith army. And uh, so uh, all the money was donated to uh, charities selected by uh, the 501st, and it was good fun. Um, and uh, Randy and I, we, we'd never go to conventions wearing the pith helmets unless it's a Star Wars convention and we're both there. <laughs> so there's there's loyalty there. People say, "How do I become a Pith Lord?" And we say, "You can't. You can't. It's just me and Randy. There's only two. It's crushing to them. Everybody wants to be a Pith Lord, but you know, it's such easy cosplay. I can see exactly why. It's yeah. You know, any anybody puts on a Pith helmet, they are instantly either transformed into a mail carrier or a uh, you know an imperial something you know it's just it's or, or an imperialist i mean it's just it's a very it's a very kind of funny transformative costume absolutely and you can still eat and drink with it and see your visibility is good so that it has that going for it too yeah i wasn't sure if it had any space balls background where they had dark helmet, and he went down to the planet, and he changed to a pith hel hat helmet that he wore. No, no, it, I, I, you know, it's it's uh, at, at the risk of sounding lazy. I saw the movie once years ago, and then, and I liked it, but until you mentioned that, I'd completely forgotten about it. Or you know, it, I haven't. I don't can't say I have a memory of a pith helmet. So, oh well. So, are there any current Star Wars projects you're working on that you're able to share with our listeners? Um, I am working on something, but I can't share. Okay, I completely understand. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, but there, there, there's, um, there, to the best of my knowledge, there will be more Star Wars com books 
coming out for a long time. <laughs> Fingers crossed, huh? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I don't know why they'd come out with more books to tie into movies and TV shows and things. It seems so radical, an idea. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, just, I mean, you you mentioned that that, that I mean about uh, it remind, just I, I, this past weekend I was at Rhode Island Comic Con and I forget just how it came up, but somebody was asking me about scholastic novelis novelizations of the original Star Wars trilogy that I wrote, which were published by Scholastic Books, I believe, in two thousand four, and. Uh, just asking, how how did those come about? And it's, I said, well, you know, I, I got a call from the scholastic editor asking me if I would be interested and available to write junior novelizations of the original trilogy. And my my response was, I don't mean to talk myself out of a job because I think, yeah, I, but there have already been novelizations published. Why 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 me? Why now? I mean, I just I, I was curious. And what I was what I was told at the time was that well you know the DVDs were going to be coming out next year for the, the trilogy, and we want to exploit the release of the DVDs with new novelizations, and there had never been junior novelizations published before. And you know what, what's I mean the funny aspect there because I mean because again I just thought. Are these are these going to be successful? I mean, I, I had no idea. I mean, it just seemed like a, you know more, new new novelizations. And the funny consequence of this is that the, the books are still in print, and um, the uh, I get letters from seven year old kids who write and say, "Dear Mr. Wyndham, I loved your Star Wars novel." How did it feel to you when George Lucas made a movie about your story? And you know, despite the fine print on the on the cover that you know this is a novelization and that's based on a screenplay, that I, I mean, it's, it's just you know, I guess it's because kids get it into their heads that you know a, a book comes first and then there's a movie adaptation, <laughs> and so it's it's um, I don't know, it's just I I um I feel very fortunate you know to have wound up doing what I do and. Now, when they ask me to, you know, write something, I rarely question. I just think it's, it's like, oh, it's going to be, a, it'll be good. It'll be good. It'll be a fun experience. Kids will like it. So, so I'll just keep doing it. Yeah. And I'm a lot older than seven, but I also enjoyed your junior novelizations, the new take they were able to add. I mean, being published not long before episode three came out, the way you were able to provide new insights versus what Alan Dean Foster had to work with back in 76. Mm-hmm. We, you know, it's it's funny that when I mean, it, again, it, it sort of gets back to how continuity changes and evolves. When I I remember specifically working on, it was the uh, the adaptation for A New Hope or the, the novelization for A New Hope. And when I wrote the thing, I said uh, because this was prior to the release of Revenge of the Sith, and it was also. Although I read the Revenge of the Sith screenplay before the movie came out because I had to for a work assignment, I'm not sure that I, I know that I contacted Lucasfilm and I asked, just so I know, does Anakin wind up on Tatooine at any point during the upcoming episode three? And they can, they said, no, but keep it under your hat. We don't want anybody to you know, know anything about episode three, but no, Anakin will not be on Tatooine. I said, okay, fine. 
because and the reason I was asking was because I thought, okay, you know, I'm I'm writing this novelization, and it suddenly occurs to me from the opening sequence that. Darth Vader is chasing down Princess Leia and that she's heading for the world that he grew up on as Anakin Skywalker. And that's something that obviously in the, you know, in the original novelizations that wasn't covered because nobody could have anticipated what happened in the prequels. And so I, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote words to the effect of Vader looking down at the sand planet or surveying it from space and just having, you know, it, it brings back painful memories. And, that he, uh, I, 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 and I forget just how I phrase it, but it was words to the effect of he had uh, no desire to return, you know, to go back to the planet. And for a moment, though, I, I mean, I remember being tempted to write something along the lines of he hadn't seen the planet since he'd left it as a boy, or, or, or I'm sorry, since since the, I'm sorry, since the events of that uh, attack of the clones, he hadn't seen it since uh, he'd buried his mother. And then I thought, mm, might be careful because I've been doing this for a while. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like that might not be good, so that might not be a good idea. So I just I kept 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 it kind of vague about what you know. I no specific mention of the last time he 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 visited Tatooine, and it was just a few years later that. After uh, Revenge of the Sith came out, and then the Clone Wars comes out, and find out, oh, Anakin does return to Tatooine. So um, I guess oh, what my my uh, my this is my roundabout way of arriving at a point in our conversation where, where I can say to any aspiring Star Wars writers out there, be very careful about saying you know, about pinpointing something in continuity in such a way that it's so locked down that there's no room for growth or expansion. I mean, it just, it's, um, because that's where continuity problems really happen. It's where, you know, if someone says he'd never been to Tatooine since that one event, it's like, well, you didn't have to phrase it that way. <laughs> Well, Ryder, thank you very much for joining us. A reminder to our listeners, the Death Star Owner's Technical Manual is on sale right now, and I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much again. Thank you, Arnie. It was fun talking with you. Thanks again to Ryder for coming on the show, and great to talk to him after reading so much of his work for so many years. And the Death Star Technical Owner's Manual is really a great compendium of history and continuity from the Death Star and all the different sources. When I was reading it, I was taken back, yes, to the Death Star novel and to some of those West End games, role-playing books. And with the great art and the great pictures contained in this book, definitely check it out. It is on sale right now at Amazon. It usually has a $30 cover price. It's on sale for $19.35. And so that is our show for this week. Now, our next show is going to be just a few days late. We are on the every other week schedule, but we do not want to miss out on our annual Thanksgiving Day release, Black Friday sale, and holiday gift guide show. We are already working to compile all of the Black Friday sales of Star Wars stuff, and there are some great sales we're going to be talking about. We're going to be working hard and our enhancers working overnight to try to get the shows out really early Thanksgiving Day because, as you know, you don't have to choose family or shopping. I choose shopping. <laughs> and because we didn't have time to get to them this show, 
On our next show, we're also going to be reviewing the Amazon-exclusive wave of Droid Factory, adding a review segment to that annual show. So that will be out two weeks from Thursday on Thanksgiving Day. We're spending lots of time on the internet looking for fun stuff. There's something you want for Christmas. Feel free to email it to us at show at swactionnews.com. You don't even have to put a voicemail to it. You can just type it up and we may insert it into the show. Then you can have your spouse or loved one listen to it and realize what you really want. I know that that's usually the show where I take the most notes to figure out what I'm getting Marjorie for that year. (laughs) Although I've already bought you a Star Wars item. You did? Mm. What is it? You'll have to wait a couple months to find out. I do my Christmas shopping early. That's our show for this week. We'll talk to you on Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We want your feedback and suggestions for Star Wars Action News. You can email us at show at swactionnews.com or post your thoughts in the Star Wars Action News forums at swactionnews.com, the most friendly forums on the web. You can also find Star Wars Action News on Facebook and Twitter. The links to our social media sites are at swactionnews.com. You can be on Star Wars Action News by calling our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI or sending an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at swactionnews.com. All materials submitted become the property of Star Wars Action News and are subject to use on our show. You can find even more Star Wars coverage at our sister podcast, Republic Forces Radio Network, where we review each episode of Om. If you're into Star Wars novels, check out the Star Wars Action News Book Club, where we read and review all the Star Wars novels. That podcast is at SWActionNews.com. For more Star Wars collecting, please check out GalacticHunter.com, JediDefender.com, JediTempleArchives.com, and YakFace.com. And we thank those sites for their support of Star Wars Action News. You can help support Star Wars Action News by making a donation using the Donate button at SWActionNews.com or by using affiliate links on the Star Wars Action News homepage when shopping online. Your support helps keep Star Wars Action News on the air. We also appreciate it if you would spread the word about Star Wars Action News. If you enjoyed the show, please post about Star Wars Action News on Facebook, Twitter, or your social media network of choice, or just tell a friend about the show. We would also greatly appreciate a five-star review written on iTunes. A link to our iTunes page is at SWActionNews.com. Star Wars Action News is created, produced, edited, and hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. The Star Wars Action News team is segment reporters Jerry, Brock, Jonathan, Nathan, and Steve, graphic design by Chris, image editing by Jay, podcast enhancement by Andrew and Barrett, associate produced and podcast announcements by Brock. Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. The show is created by Star Wars fans showing their love of Star Wars. Star Wars and all that the Star Wars universe contains is trademark and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, all rights reserved. Until next time, may the pegs be stocked and the Force be with you.
Star Wars Action News is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Star Wars Action News. Now this is podcasting. December 18th, we'll go to Fandango. Chitra, my dear, I used Fandango. <laughs> go ahead and start signups now, because Halloween... Why would I say Halloween? I don't know why you'd say Halloween.